Hey, Justin here with two things real quick. First, as season two draws to a close, man, it's gone so quick. We've got just two more episodes after this one. I'm gathering patrons to make sure Holy Ghost Stories continues into season three and beyond. And now, if this is your first time listening, this is not for you. But if you love Holy Ghost Stories, I need your help. So after about the fifth episode of Holy Ghost Stories, I got an email from a listener who said, hey, I love this, but I'm confused. How, how are you giving this away for free? Well, here's how. When I decided I wanted to create Holy Ghost Stories, my wife and I rented out our house, we moved out, drastically cut our living expenses, and I got to work, praying that some of the folks who loved it would eventually support it on Patreon so that I could keep making it. See, each episode takes around 80 hours to create. Uh, It is not a part-time gig. So if you want Holy Ghost Stories to keep existing, we have to do it together. You jump in on Patreon if you're able, and I will keep telling the old stories this way. Many of you have come alongside me as patrons, and I'm so grateful, but we're certainly not there yet. My savings will only last so long, and hey, if I need to, I will go do something else, but I think this is where God wants me. I've heard amazing feedback from so many of you who are being touched by this podcast, and so I'm praying that God moves you to consider partnering with me because there are so many great stories to tell, and He is in every one of them, which means there are so many thrilling moments we will get to spend in these stories with Him. Now, the second thing, you are in for an incredible treat with this episode. I have been at work on it for months alongside an extraordinarily gifted man named Kendall Ramsour. He is a cellist and composer who is kind of a big deal and way out of my league, but he loves Holy Ghost Stories, and I was able to hire him to create an original score for this episode. He did it for a steep discount, but it was still a huge investment for me. I can't tell you, though, how different it is to have music created just for this Bible story. You will see for yourself in a moment, it was worth every penny. Now, I would love to do this for you more, maybe one collaboration a year or for the finale each season. Wouldn't that be amazing? But you know what it's going to take, right? Partnership. So let's do this together. It's the only way Holy Ghost Stories will continue to exist. Head to patreon.com slash holyghoststories to join hands with me. Thanks in advance for letting God use you this way. Now, I hope you enjoy The Lion, The Witch, and The War Zone. Great power bewitches, coaxes us away from our tidy morals and professed priorities, sets us on a path. A taste of that kind of power easily becomes a craving And once we crave it, a threat to that power can disfigure us, twist us into crazed, desperate specters, barely recognizable versions of our former selves. This is a ghost story, a story about the hungers and fears and regrets that haunted one powerful man, beckoning, taunting, and warning from the shadows as he clung against the will of the divine to his precious, privileged life. And it's a story about a God who rules not only over the land of the living, but over the realm of the dead, able to usher those he chooses from one domain to the other. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories.
Saul, ruler of Israel, paces in his tent at the center of the Israelite army's camp in Gilgal. An attendant perhaps tries once again to put a fresh dressing on one of the king's wounds, but Saul waves him off, annoyed, distracted, angry. And why is the king angry right now? He and his army won the battle, defeated the Amalekites, routed them, in fact. Even now, Saul's mind involuntarily rehearses scenes of the campaign. Flashes of bronze armor, guttural groans and screams carried on the wind, smells of sweat and the breath of soldiers, flames swallowing houses, smoke rising from smoldering piles of camels and oxen and infants, sand and blood everywhere. Those who are not warriors have no idea what war is like. No idea of the pain or the pressure or the decisions that have to be made in a moment. No idea what it's like to take a life or to have the power to save one. This is why Saul is angry. He's just heard that a visitor is on his way. Samuel, the prophet of Yahweh, the civilian. The old man, coming no doubt to lecture him, a warrior king, on how to conduct a battle, to find fault with the calls he made in the field, good calls, decisions born of experience and good sense. Samuel, Yahweh's hound. Saul will never understand why Yahweh doesn't just let Saul be king. It's Saul's throne, Saul's sovereign will that should rule the day. Yahweh coming behind him, helping him win, the ultimate talisman, safe within Saul's pocket. But no, always with the mandates delivered through Samuel, the specific orders, the expectations, the disapproval. And frankly, Saul bats away the attendant again. The poor choices. How long had it taken for Yahweh to execute justice on those enemies of Israel, the Amalekites? Too long. And the strategy given to him from above, destroy all of the cattle and every one of the Amalekites. Why? Why not use the Amalekites, subjugate them, extract taxes from them? What a waste. No, Saul was right to capture Agag, the Amalekite king. No reason to miss out on all the ways he might come in handy, a bargaining chip, a trophy to garner the respect of other hostile neighbors, a representative of Saul's enemies who could be tortured in their stead, reminding Saul of his might. Of course, it wasn't just the king Saul kept as a trophy. Why waste the best of the Amalekites' excellent livestock? That would have been a similar error in his estimation. And the steak he enjoyed last night was delicious. Suddenly, a guard ducks his head into the tent, concern on his face. Your Majesty, the prophet Samuel is here. Time to engage, but artfully. Win Samuel, win Yahweh. Win Yahweh, keep the throne. May Yahweh bless you, Samuel, says the king, feigning a welcoming posture as the prophet ducks into his tent. And then, preemptively, Saul continues, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. What then, counters Samuel, is this sound of sheep and goats and cattle I hear? 
Saul rises, his impressive stature on full display in a low-ceilinged tent. The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to make a sacrifice to Yahweh your God. And then, defensively, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaims Samuel. Why didn't you obey Yahweh? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of Yahweh? But I did obey Yahweh, Saul yells. I went on the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, at Gilgal. Samuel scowls at Saul, the prophet's eyes narrowing, his voice lowering, his pulse throbbing angrily in his weathered neck. Does Yahweh take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Samuel searches for compunction in the king's eyes. Nothing. This is a perfect portrait of Saul's reign. It's exactly what Yahweh hoped could be avoided when he allowed the Israelites a king. Can a perfect God feel regret? Samuel continues, incensed. Rebellion, Saul, is like the sin of divination. The king's face wrinkles dismissively. Witchcraft? That's a bit of a stretch. Maybe Yahweh doesn't approve of what he did, but it certainly wasn't on the level of divination. Saul himself banned witchcraft in Israel years ago. No seances, no mediums, no occult rituals. And now Samuel accuses him? How dare he? But Samuel continues, Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you as king. King Saul's eyes widen, outrage eclipsed by panic. I have sinned. I have transgressed Yahweh's command and your words. Please. I am done with you, Saul, Samuel says, tears gathering in his eyes. Because you rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you from being king over Israel. No, cries Saul, grabbing the prophet's robe as he turns to leave. Samuel yanks his garment back, but Saul tightens his grip and tears it in two. Hysterical, Saul looks from the robe to Samuel's face to see the prophet look down at his ripped garment and say with unflinching finality, Yahweh has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today. Please, begs the king, I've sinned. Let me make this right. Samuel turns to face Saul and tells him, bring me King Agag of Amalek. Yes, anything. Saul goes himself to get the captive king and brings him back into his royal tent moments later to find Samuel holding a sword. Before Saul can say a word, Samuel speaks, addressing Agag. As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And with that, the old man lifts the sword above his head and brings it down with astonishing force onto the quivering Agag. The king of Amalek falls, bloodied, to his knees, and Samuel raises the blade again, bringing it down not just into a piece of Agag's body, but through a piece of it. 
Saul looks on, horrified, as again Samuel raises the sword aloft and whips it back down through the air toward Agag, blood spraying onto Samuel's beard and onto Saul's raised hands and across the white fabric of his royal tent. Full minutes pass as Saul watches the white-haired prophet hack the king of Amalek to pieces. Finally, Samuel, tears streaming down his cheeks, throws the crimson sword to the ground and walks out on Saul, who cannot look away from the shocked eyes of Agag, staring up from his severed head. Thirteen years after that day in Gilgal, King Saul, still somehow clutching his throne, rides atop his horse as he leads Israel's army into the southern end of the Jezreel Valley. So many armies have gathered here for battle. This time, Israel and Philistia will meet as combatants, the blood of untold thousands watering the soil in a few days' time. Saul turns the formation toward the mountain slopes forming the southern flank of the valley, a melange of windswept Aleppo pines and evergreen shrubs, the ground carpeted with irises signaling the arrival of spring, the petals beginning in a vibrant royal purple that fades as they reach their end. Gilboa, the Hebrews call this range of peaks, agitated pools, an homage to the bubbling springs that dot the landscape and an apt picture of what happens to King Saul's heart once he gets high enough to glimpse the Philistines' forces arrayed to the north. They are vast. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ferocious Philistines swarming in the opposite end of the valley. Some would say their presence this far north is a testament to Saul's failure to defend his people. But look at them. Who could contain a force like that? It's not just the warriors of Philistia, though, filling Saul with dread. Saul has faced them before, though it is true Yahweh seemed closer during those conflicts. No, the king's terror as he looks out upon his enemies isn't so much about the multitude of soldiers he sees but one soldier in particular. Saul cannot see him, but he's received word that this warrior is down there somewhere among the Philistine army, an enemy he's tried for years to overcome, a man whose strength and luck in battle are storied, legendary. David, son of Jesse, conqueror of the great Goliath of Gath, leader of a ragtag bunch of 600 fiercely loyal men. David of Judah, down there among the Philistines. The usurper Saul hunted for years with no success. The would-be thief who's been after Saul's throne for over a decade. Sure, Yahweh had Samuel anoint David king, but David was a bad choice. That much was clear as soon as he didn't take the throne by force 
didn't want it. He didn't respect the power. Didn't have what it takes. Not like Saul. Saul honors his power by keeping it. Meanwhile, David fled into the arms of the Philistines, willing to betray his countrymen in order to survive. Disgusting. But his prowess in battle, his band of rabid raiders, his connection to Yahweh, and the prospect of facing Achish's vast army and David and his 600 fighters, it makes Saul's blood run cold. Usually courageous in battle, fear now rages inside of him. Information, that's what he needs. If only he knew whether the rumors about David are true. If only he knew how this battle with the Philistines would end. If only he had what he used to have in the beginning, foreknowledge, information about the future, like Yahweh used to provide through Samuel. But Samuel is dead. Perhaps, perhaps Yahweh will speak to Saul. Saul prays. How long has it been since he's done that? Asking Yahweh for what he wants, what he's owed, really, as king of Israel. Asking for what's been withheld from him for so long. The intelligence he requires, facts he can use to make a sovereign decision about this war. And then, as the two armies make their final preparations for battle during the coming days, Saul waits for an answer. He waits for a dream, but he has no dreams. He consults the Urim, but the Urim reveals nothing. He looks for a prophet, even, a new Samuel, to arrive in the camp with a fresh message. But no prophet comes. Yahweh's silence could not be louder. Eventually, the armies are ready. The looming battle can be delayed one more day, maybe two, but no longer. Still craving the information he needs to protect his fragile place atop Israel's throne, Saul scrambles for a solution. If Yahweh will not divulge the outcome of this battle, if he refuses the information Saul needs, if that is not his will, then Saul has no choice but to rebel. And perhaps at this point, the words of the prophet from years ago echo in his mind. Rebellion, Saul, is like the sin of divination. Yes, that's it. Find me a witch, King Saul says to his attendants. Find me a woman who is a medium, so I can go and consult her. Samuel may be dead, but that doesn't mean Saul can't talk to him. The king's attendants look at one another in surprise. Then, when they see the deadly serious expression on the king's face, one of them replies, There is a woman at Endor who is a medium.
All day, Saul does not eat. Is this an involuntary fast, provoked by nerves? Or is it carried out as a requirement of the ritual he plans to take part in tonight? Night falls on Israel, daylight extinguished as the nation turns away from the sun. The hours tick by, the murmur of conversation in the camp giving way eventually to the songs of crickets, the calls of owls, and the far-off roaring of lions. It's time. Saul removes his crown, his royal robe, any armor or vestments identifying him as king, and disguises himself in the clothing of a commoner. Then the costumed Saul, accompanied by two attendants and careful not to wake his sleeping army, mounts his horse and turns the reins in the direction of Endor. Once they're safely out of earshot of the camp, Saul and his men spur their mounts on to a gallop, careful to cut a wide berth around the fires of Philistine garrisons as they head north through the darkness of the Jezreel Valley. Saul's cloak flaps as the wind pushes against him. Hooves kick black dust into the air. Whip slaps flesh again and again. After an hour or so of hard riding, they arrive. Saul dismounts, barely taking time to secure his horse before banging on the witch's door. The door creaks open, revealing the face of a woman, her features silhouetted by the hearth fire inside. What does she look like? Is she ancient? Leathery, pockmarked cheeks, stooped, shuffling frame, brittle gray hairs escaping in all directions from beneath a dark cloak? Or is she younger, young even? Smooth skin the color of sandalwood, bright, piercing eyes, beauty that startles, disarms, intrigues her clientele. For generations, those who hear this story will wonder what Saul sees when he meets the famed Witch of Endor. Perhaps, given her renown, the time it takes to develop such a reputation, and the fact that such skills have not been in demand for years thanks to the king's decree, it makes sense that we imagine her elderly, wizened, grizzled. If the king's two attendants swallow hard at the sight of a witch in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, Saul is too focused to be afraid of her, distracted from almost everything by his obsession. Consult a spirit for me, he commands. Bring up for me the one I tell you. He may have left behind the trappings of his kingship, but imperiousness is more difficult to divest. The woman's brow furrows at the stranger, her head shaking in dissent. You surely know what Saul has done, she says. How he has killed the mediums and spiritists in the land. She glances around nervously. Why are you setting a trap for me to get killed? 
Saul grabs her by the shoulders. As surely as Yahweh lives, nothing bad will happen to you because of this. He lies. Somehow, something about this man's ardent request softens her resolve. Or perhaps it's simple math. Three men making demands of a lone woman in the wee hours of the night. Best not to give them a reason to harm her. She beckons for the three to follow her through the darkness to a pit not far from the house. Endor means spring of generations, appropriate for a place where past generations could be consulted, their spirits bubbling up from the underworld. The witch stands astride a well-worn spot at the edge of the black cavity. Saul's men anxiously eye one another. Staring into the gaping hole, she asks, who is it that you want me to bring up for you? Saul, a tremor in his voice, replies, Bring Samuel up for me. Ah, yes, the witch surely thinks. The famed prophet of Yahweh, Israel's kingmaker, divine herald, royal counselor. But the only one who could summon the king's prophet would be... No, it couldn't be. This attempted seance will end in disappointment, surely. The witch begins her ritual. The disguised king and his men watch in fascination, their eyes now adjusted to the absence of light. She twists or chants or cuts herself or casts calf organs into the chasm, her talismans rustling perhaps like phylacteries. Her eyes rolled back in her head, her guttural calls overtaking the stillness of the night. Saul's heart races. Suddenly, the witch screams, eyes wide as if she's seen something terrifying. Why did you deceive me? She demands. You are Saul! Saul, though, is too preoccupied to care about being identified. He shouts back, don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, she answers. What does he look like? Saul manages. An old man is coming up, she replies. He's wearing a robe. Is this actually happening? Saul, blinded by adrenaline, matches the imprecise description to the prophet of his memory, the old man in a blood-spattered robe he saw last that day in Gilgal. Tim! The king drops to the ground, his face bowed in homage. Samuel then becomes visible, not just to the witch, but to everyone present. Whether his likeness forms in the assembled droplets of a mist, or he steps into their presence as if through a doorway, luminescent in the darkness, or he claws his way out of the pit, tangible and opaque, none but these few will ever know. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? The voice is Samuel's. Saul glances up at the prophet's face, simultaneously disbelieving and convinced. He stumbles to his feet. I'm in serious trouble. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. The witch's eyes flick from Saul to the apparition. Samuel glares. Since Yahweh has turned away from you 
and has become your enemy. Why are you asking me? That is exactly why I am asking you, Saul thinks to himself, perhaps. Indignance, ever so briefly supplanting fear, as Samuel's words hang in the black air. Yahweh turned away from me, and if he will not speak to me, then I will force you to do it. Yahweh has done exactly what he said through me. He has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You did not obey Yahweh and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, Yahweh has done this to you today. Those words, the self-same words Samuel delivered just before he disposed of King Agag. Words of unmitigated judgment. Panic spreads across Saul's face. Yahweh will also hand Israel over to the Philistines, along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons, the hoary prophet's pointed finger turns from the king toward his own breast, will be with me. Immediately, Saul faints and crashes to the ground. His attendants try to catch him, but they're no match for the sudden descent of his sizable frame. Terror-struck, famished, spent, the unconscious king involuntarily curls into a fetal position, trembling, beads of cold sweat dotting his crownless forehead. When King Saul comes to, he looks up to see the witch bending over him, her sour breath warm in his nostrils. It's clear he's still consumed by the horror of Samuel's prophecy. Look, she insists, I have done what you asked. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to. Now please, let me set some food in front of you. Eat it, and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. Why does she offer Saul food? Is it altruism? Is it a self-interested attempt to garner favor and ensure the king keeps his word so that no harm will come to her? Is it to simply speed his recovery so that he and his men can go away and she can be done with this relapse into necromancy? Or is it a welcome a sealing of the fellowship Saul has initiated with her and her dark arts. If it is the latter, perhaps that's why Saul refuses the offer. I won't eat, he contends. But the woman doubles down, urging him to stay and dine with her. And then the resolve in Saul's eyes suddenly weakens, as if something or someone else has taken the reins. The fearful expression, the look of a man at war within himself, displaced by an aspect of pallid resignation. He struggles to his feet, stealing a glance at the pit. Nothing. Samuel is gone, returned to the realm of the dead. 
As Saul's men walk him into the witch's hut, the elderly woman hobbles through the night to a pasture, where a fattened calf lies amidst the grass, legs tucked beneath its belly, eyes closed in sleep. The witch approaches the unwitting animal and flicks her wrist, a glint of metal visible in the starlight. Blood flows from its vertebral artery, the warm liquid pooling on the ground. The calf grows limp, and the woman sets to work, cuts a line from its neck to its tail, peeling back the skin from the flesh, slices into the abdominal cavity, the intestines and stomach spilling out, carves along the spine and between the ribs, dividing the carcass into quarters and removing the haunches. Knife flashing, hands a blur, the witch butchers the animal in an astonishingly short amount of time. A mistress of the macabre, this woman is no stranger to slaughter, evisceration, death. Soon, Veal cooks over the hearth fire inside the witch's hut as she hunches over a board on the floor, mixing flour, oil, water. Her gnarled hands coax the mixture into a dough, the unruly bones of her fingers changing direction at each swollen knuckle like a river rounding a bend. She scrapes the remnants from her index finger with her thumb, shapes the loaf with successive embraces, and puts the bread into a clay pot to bake above the fire. Meanwhile, King Saul salivates as the smells of the witch's food fill the air of the hut. Finally, she serves him, the runes on her tattooed skin visible now in the firelight, and the king of Yahweh's people dines at the table of the Witch of Endor, hungrily tasting, chewing, swallowing the food she's made, tearing the unleavened bread, drinking the cup of wine. This will be Saul's last supper. Yahweh, heartbroken, cannot bear to watch this communion. Daybreak finds King Saul and his men back among the camp of the Israelites. The drums of war refuse to be ignored any longer. Today, Israel and Philistia will finally do battle in the Jezreel Valley. And when they do, the Philistines will prevail, just as the ghost of Samuel foretold, just as Saul feared. Israel will be chased back to the Gilboa slopes, and there, Yahweh will allow the pagans from Gath to cut down so many of his beloved people. And Saul, Saul will die. First, he will witness his warrior sons being killed, Abinadab, Malkishua, and Jonathan. And then, as the Philistine army draws in and the fighting intensifies around King Saul, archers will spot and target him. One arrow will pierce his mail shirt, tearing its way into his flesh, and then another 
lodging itself in his thigh, perhaps, as he struggles to stay atop his sweating horse. His head swivels, looking for the source of the missiles, but it's no use. They are coming from several bows. Another arrow strikes him, and another. Finally, Saul slips from his mount, groaning as every inch of his height crashes to the ground. Staggering to his feet, he turns toward his armor-bearer. Draw your sword and run me through, he pleads, glancing around at the Philistine soldiers closing in on him. If you do not, these uncircumcised men will torture me and run me through themselves. The young armor-bearer stands frozen, terrified. He shakes his head at his king's command, incredulous, refusing to obey. Saul, his crown aslant, barely still atop his head, snarls and grabs his own sword, points it at his heart, and falls onto the blade. The king of Israel, murdered by the king of Israel. Face down in the dirt, Saul breathes his last with a smeared bronze shaft rising from his back like a scarlet obelisk a monument to his spectacular demise. And Yahweh, Yahweh cries. Surely he cries. Tears of sorrow as he grieves this king he loved who refused to love him back. But hopeful tears too. Tears provoked by the promise of a new leader for Israel. One the people wouldn't have chosen, but Yahweh will choose. Someone who will not just rule over the flock of Israel, but shepherd them. Someone more like him. Justin here. I hope you loved this very special episode of Holy Ghost Stories. I mean, it's difficult and sad and gruesome at points. I actually spared you from some of the most gruesome stuff. You can read about that at the end of 1 Samuel 31. But these stories in the Old Testament, difficult as they may be, are always good. And I cannot tell you how much fun this was to create alongside Kendall, each of us telling the story in our native tongues, me with words, Kendall with music. I'm telling you, Kendall Ramsour is a genius. If you listen five times to this episode, you will hear something new in his score every time. That is one of the reasons I'm so excited to let you know that the day this episode drops, that's Monday, October 25th, 2021, I am releasing a video conversation where Kendall and I talk through what it was like to tell this story together. It's super interesting, a lot of fun. We talk about the process of collaboration, our favorite parts of this episode, the hardest parts of this episode to write and to score, and more. It's all on video. You can watch it at holyghoststories.org slash endor. It's up right now, holyghoststories.org slash E-N-D-O-R. And for all of you patrons of Holy Ghost Stories, I have something very special for you. Kendall and I are going to do a live Q&A where you can ask us whatever questions you have about this episode, about the score you heard, or what it was like to do this together, or how we went about it, whatever you want to know. It's happening the evening of Thursday, October 28th at 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern. Thursday, October 28th, 8 Central, 
right on Patreon just for patrons. So mark your calendar, set an alarm, and hey, if you're not a patron yet, come on. You'll love interacting with Kendall. He is a delight. And you will love knowing, as you do, that you are making it possible for this podcast to reach people around the world. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Holy Ghost Stories. I'll see you there. Finally, special thanks to the Raconteurs, the Black Belt Ninjas of Holy Ghost Stories patronage. Boo, Helen, Jared and Kaylin, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric, John, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa Sloan, and Jamie M. I'm so grateful for you. Till next time.